Mind Grind Show. Today we discuss who exploits whom. Marx, Hopper, feminism, and more. Tim. The question I'd like to answer and have a conversation about here is around these sort of names. Everyone sort of has a common sense definition of exploitation here, which works insofar as it may not have a technical thing. So we sort of get into the technical details of what exactly is it as an exploitation here. Um, but you name some names in your our title. We also include others like Lenin, Carson, Kevin Carson, Gary North, Ricardo Smith, um, the Maoists, third worldists. Uh, and Proudhon, of course. So I'll start with Adam Smith, because I think Adam Smith predates a lot of these uh, thinkers, the first liberal thinker. And of course, he does have a theory of moral of theory of moral sentiments, but in his book on the wealth of nations, uh, and this Gary North takes this very much so in Biobio So Rich, he makes the point that the the people who are in, industrious or have ingenuity are the real drivers of the world, um, and it's a private vice, which is selfishness which traditional Catholic moral ethical sentiments, um, as well as sort of left-wing sort of Kantian type ethical systems, you know, pursuing your self-interest uh, in terms of profit. Now, again, of course, Smith has the theory of moral sentiments, and he, you know, but uh, there is this idea where private vice equals public virtue. Uh, so like hardworking for your own ends. And this were invisible hand type stuff and the sort of pro-Smith people who take that there. So I guess you could say those who don't work get exploited. Uh, those who don't work exploit the, those who do work and work hard and work smart. Now, Proudhon, of course, I think is the next thing worth bringing up here. Um, and Proudhon would just say property is theft. So this is where I think there's an interesting link here, because like the, the people say that property is a theft, they're absentee landlords and absentee rent collectors. And this is, I'd say, the real tie-in between Smith and Proudhon. So like the, when the Marxists, we just did an episode of Chris Catron, he likes to quote Catron, Catron likes to quote Smith, and a lot of the, you know, Marxist Smithians would say that, like, property, and via Proudhon, it's, of course, that property, like, those property holders are just rent collectors. They're not actually doing anything with their property. They're just sort of sitting around, um, you know, they're like a aristocratic landlord. They're not, they're, they're, they're idle. So that's, that's one of the ways in which I think is sort of uncanny ways. And I, and I, I think, I think there's a certain sense that that might be true here. Maybe, maybe it is true. Maybe it isn't the case. And the third group is the ones that take this forward, and that's the Marxists here. The Marxists, of course, think labor time um, is theft. Uh, well, effective labor time, or whatever parlance they use. Um, you know, not digging ditches and filling them in is laborers, but that's not necessarily uh, effective labor here. So they'll add a caveat here. But as we stated in other episodes, I think the Marxists fetishize labor here. Now, the Hoppians, of course, um, they um, take the state, Hoppians, Rothbardians, I'll start with Hoppians and Rothbardians. There's another theory of exploitation. And they sort of tie back in Proudhonians because they view that the state is the primary exploitator. And I think this is very clear with the sort of left left hop, left hop, Rothbard and the sort of late Hans Hoppe, who's very critical of the state, um, um, who just views the state. And they sort of do have a tie back with the sort of mutualist anarchists and so forth because you could think of the state as the best, biggest landlord. We did an episode on this. Um, so if you really want to try to sort of synthesize the different theories of exploitation, that might be one of the ways to do it. Um, now, I think there's sort of the Mises, of course, and Hoppe and Rothbard take parts of Mises, but they will say the central banks of the state are the main form of power and that they, through taxation, it's sort of slavery, it's theft, it creates all these other ripple effects. It devalues the money. And like, you know, that's the primary way taxation, 
and control, like the central banks are the primary form of exploitation here. It's not, um, and that's also answers why Marx answers a lot of the sort of practical Marxist concerns. Um, and I think there's also broader theories too, third worldism. Now I would say third worldism takes the insight of Marxism to to universalize it to the end. You say, well, well, it's not really working classes in Britain or in the United States that are being exploited. If you think really about labor theory, value exploitation, it's actually the third world that does the labor. You know um, that the Chinese, the Pakistanis, the Bangladesh, those people. So you get the sort of you get these sort of, and a lot of Marxists don't like these thinkers because you know it's like, and people brought this to us once up to you know, Milton Friedman. I think Milton Friedman brought this up. Again, I know Milton Friedman's limitations, but I think someone brought this up. They're talking about black slave descendants, and they were trying to argue they were privileged. I think by technical Marxist economics, they are privileged by some technical version. I know a lot of left libertarians don't like to hear that, um, but uh, but that that's that's probably true here, and that's also true for everyone else too. And like the Maoists are big on this, you know, because one of the puzzles for a lot of developed Marxists is why did the revolutions happen in peasant countries, not Germany, not the United States? If anything, in Germany, who had a radical revolution, it was a fascist revolution, not a Marxist revolution. So that's a sort of puzzle to people like Catron and a lot of the developed Marxists here. Now, I think I could answer it, but they do not like the answer, and that's sort of our disagreement. Uh, and so forth. And of course, there's the colonial theories of exploitation, which again, Adam Smith would attack mercantilism, the corn laws, well, Ricardo and others would, um, would attack the corn laws and various other, you know, bounty systems and so forth that the, you know, the cutting down of free trade creates a form of exploitation here. And I guess the, there's two other theories you could add. Feminist theories, which Swithin would, which, which is just to say that women get exploited by men. Now, we've done a few episodes on this. I think it's probably the weakest one. Um, I'm not too much interested. If Swithin wants to get into this more, that's more of his thing. And of course, um, uh, the classic sort of colonial chattel slavery exploitation, which is which those systems don't really exist. If they do exist, they exist in places like Libya. They exist in places like the former Ottoman Empire. They don't really exist with a capital E. You could argue they're inefficient. There's some people who would make that claim that they're actually technically inefficient, um, that it's actually better just to pay people. You get more private ingenuity. In We've done a little of the details of that. But overall, if you take a common sense view of exploitation, there's about seven thinkers here, seven theories or so, different forms of exploitation. They range around property. They range around the state. They range around corporate power. You know, whether corporate power is more important than state power. Um, and of course, they range around intellectual power, too. Because you, know, you could say, like, well, what keeps all these things in place? Maybe it's ideas that keep them in place here. Um, so, Swithin, what do you think of the various theories of exploitation here? Um, I do think there's a kind of commonplace things. I think if you dig down deep enough, you look into Adam Seth, you look into Perdon, you look into Marx, you look into Rothbard, you can find a lot of similarities in between them. Um, um, and I would say that like you know, the one thing that always haunts the back there is like, you know, is it is it the comp is it the high intelligent or the competent people get exploited by the exploit the low competence people here? Maybe that's the real thing that divides the thing the the, the world the world up between the, expo the exploiters and the unexploited here. Um, so maybe that's the one way to synthesize it. What would you make of those the different theories of exploitation here? What do you think is the salient or the primary form of exploitation? I will say the state is the primary. One. I, otherwise, I wouldn't be a right libertarian here. I think banks and the finance system do state banks and state finance are the big 
bugaboos here. If I, I, I wouldn't be a right libertarian if I wasn't one. Well, what's your take, and what do you think of my overview of different theories, Swithin? Um, I would possibly unsurprisingly agree with you that the state is one of the um, is is the major uh, root of exploitation, even though um, it manifests itself in different ways in different times. Um, I mean, it might be worth just discussing. I think this might be obvious uh, with respect to what exploitation means. Here, I mean, uh, exploitations of exploitation theory from sort of Marxism would be, you know, how does someone live at the expense of somebody else? Um, in a way, there's an idea that there are some, some. It's generally an economic concept, um, and that there's either certain groups can't um, can't earn as much as they otherwise would. All the stuff that they do earn is taken from them by another group. That would seem to me to be a rough and ready, but reasonably useful way of looking at exploitation. Um, to mention, you mentioned some feminism. Um, feminism seems to be, uh, we were just going through like all the different types of think of, and I thought, oh, we could mention feminism. Um, but as you say, I mean, I have very little trip with the feminists. It seems to make very little sense. Um, considering, well, if you take the sort of, quote-unquote, the traditional model, although that isn't necessary to what I think when I put it traditional, uh, if anything, the, the, the wife exploits the husband because the husband is the one who's actually doing, uh, bringing in um, sort of monetary income. Now, of course, the feminists would go, well, you know, there's unpaid labour in the household and stuff, fine. Um, but if you're looking at pure sort of economic terms, I mean, the husband is bringing home the bacon in, in such a model. Um, and also, it just seems highly unlikely that there would be a systematic exploitation between the sexes when they're so obviously complementary. Now, that's not to say that any individual level of exploitation couldn't take place, but rather that that it would exist on such a wide scale is just absurd. Um, to your point on the state, I would say the state is the major one, although... Um, in a way, you could say it's more fundamental than the state in that, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll circle back. What I think is is consistent, say, between the Marxists, the Rothbardians, the Prodonists, um, the Third Worldists as well, to a large extent, uh, not to sound like a Georgist, but I think a lot of the sort of root of exploitation seems to come down to land. And that's what Proudhon was... Um, concern mostly about was sort of absentee landlords uh, in that somehow a certain group could arrogate themselves a certain piece of land and exclude others from working on it. I mean, that's why, for instance, in Marxism, you get the the, well, the proletariat are landless. Well, why are they landless? Well, in well, at least in, in sort of uh, British terms, because they've been booted off the common land and they can't um, till it themselves anymore. So they have to be employed, as it were, self-employment it's it's not impossible, uh, but it's significantly less possible than it was when where you you could work your work for the Lord for a little bit, pay your tithes and your duties and stuff, but then it's also common land that you can work on. Um, Kevin Carson has some interesting historical analysis uh, in this regard. Um, so I, I I think a lot of the time, uh, so so what I'm saying is this. Depe depending, of course, on how you want to define the state, I think it's possible that a society might have property norms 
um, in which uh, if someone just uh, verbally claimed a certain piece of land and if they were of sufficient rank in the society, now you could you could call that just statist if you wished. Um, and but the the reason I focus on land is because it does give a lot of um, if if you can completely um, exclude people from it, I mean access to sort of like productive, um, productively useful resources is a lot lower, and and I, I suppose you could argue it's more of a thing prior to the industrial revolution, but it's still obviously true today. I mean, you just look at rental prices in most cities, uh, and it's pretty obvious that if you have uh sort of single ownership of land i mean you can earn a serious amount of money in rental income now i'm not saying that's per se exploitative but it shows that land still matters um in 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 that way um but as i've implied um in the case of uh, in the case of england and britain uh, the rise of the state and um land um, expropriation go hand in hand with the enclosures, etc., with the sort of rise of the more sort of bureaucratic state. And well, interestingly, under Henry VIII, I mean, Henry VIII wanted to get over and above, well, he wanted to reduce the power of the nobility by allying himself with the merchant class. Um, and I think from memory, started, he was the first to, guy to in, introduce the enclosures acts, and uh, so that the merchants could more easily graze sheep because the wool industry was very um, lucrative at the time. Um, so I, I, I would certainly go on the state now with respect to the competent and the incompetent I mean it almost answers itself when you put it in that way I mean how could the incompetent exploit the competent I mean in a way and, and unless there was some sort of street savvy amongst the sort of intellectually undeveloped shall we call them uh, to be able to somehow exploit uh, the rich. Oh, unless, unless, of course, they could somehow successfully impose some sort of quote unquote slave morality, which I suppose could be sort of like a, a Nietzschean aversion, which I don't think about sort of exploitation in, in, in that sense. But I mean, it just seems obvious that it would be the, um, the competent which is exploit the incompetent, which doesn't mean that the incompetent can't help. If you've got a particular competent demagogic figure, who can sort of use the the, the generally incompetent um, to to aid his his goals in certain ways? Then you could argue to some extent the incompetent were exploiting the competent, but without some very sort of competent um, or group of small group of people who are competent to organise them, I simply don't see them ever getting to a situation where they could uh, exploit um, the. The competence. So that would be sort of my general overview of the way I would approach this. One of the ways which I think you can link Gary North's, and he takes just, and there's Why Are We So Rich, and Adam Smith, the Bredonians, and the Marxists all together. Um, and Gary North is our sort of stand in for, um, you know, the Rothbardians too, is that like if you take the private, inju- the private industriousness and you try, and why would you be privately industrious if you did not have access to the capital and the means of the good, like the means of production and to the actual gains? Um, so, like, you know, if you take it like the existential comics type guy, the, the other, all the others, they really go after capital and, and land as like, well, even if you take the sort of Protestant 
Weberry and Gary North type, Adam Smith type morality seriously. Many of the workers don't even have access to that. They're just paying rents. Now, this gets into the nation who's actually doing the renting, who's actually the absentee landlord. We did this in our Is the State a Landlord episode here. And, you know, my problem with sort of the left anarchists a lot, the left generally, but not necessarily the left anarchists. The left anarchists know this, but the left generally don't really see that the state is the actual landlord. It's not, it's the landlord, the private landlords are more, you know, either short-term businessmen who just see a gain to be made, um, or, or they're just, or, or they're actually <laughs> technically unethical, which is like, okay, it's fine. It's unethical to do that. But then why are they allowed to do that? And why, you know, isn't there, um, uh, why is there continuing to allowed to do that? Um, now you could go, always go to the, well, they're more competent than the others, but you have to sort of ask that question here. Um, so like, like maybe that's the reason is that people don't have access to means of production. So maybe the Marxists are right. Maybe this is, if you want to steal man them here, here. But one question I've always had is, you know, and I think this is related to other things too, and I think this should be asked with libertarians as well, is why hasn't there been more revolutions? Why hasn't there been more um, uh, slave rebellions? Why hasn't there been more, like, attacks, rebellions, and so forth here? You know, you could ask, why are people so docile, too? Whatever your theory of exploitation here. And I think you touched on that a little bit at the end here of your most recent comment here. Uh, you know, and again, again, if you think wage slavery is slavery, which I think the Kevin Carsonians and the Keith Prestons of the world do, why do so many people work for McDonald's here? Uh, why don't they sort of overthrow the bosses, so to speak, um, since the bosses are, are few, the workers and masses are many here? Um, and that that's question, you know, that question of, like, of exploitation here, you either have to say they don't actually believe they're being exploited, or they believe they're being exploited exploited in a sense, but they have no alternative, or they believe that the exploitation is actually good, and therefore they're not really being exploited. Um, so the, so you're left with, to me, basically three, three, three options here, because if they really are exploitative, then why, why are there so few revolutions to overthrow this, this form of exploitation here? Are the, are the sheeple don't know what they're good for? Um, you know, are the sheeple, so to speak, uh, too dumb? Are the sheeple too disorganized here, you know, and, and if they need to be organized, who exactly is going to do the organizing here? Um, so, Swithin, what do you make of my sort of quick one-two response here? Um, I mean, I do I do think there is a way you can link Gary North's Why Are You So Rich, um, which, you know, you know, giving productive labor at private, you know, private ingenuity. You know, why would you want to be, you know, I could see why, you know, Thaddeus Russell talks about how, you know, and again, sometimes Thaddeus Russell gets picked up by, like, Eddie Schroff gets annoyed when he gets picked up by certain far-right people because, I'm using that technically, because he'll say that the slaves were lazy, but Thaddeus Russell will make the point that slaves are lazy, but it's rational to be lazy. They don't have any, they don't get paid, in the same way with serfs, they don't get paid to be not lazy here. Um, um, I think if anyone goes to a small business that's locally owned by a, you might get very good service. If you go to a, a McDonald's, you're going to get average service. You're not going to get great service. You're not going to get bad service. I think that's sort of quick example here. Um, um, but of course, the Randians would say, well, maybe the small business owner exploits the uh, everybody, gets exploited by everybody else. There's always a sort of counter pushback here. But I've, I've asked a number of points there here because I don't have a coherent thing, a coherent theory of exploitation. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing the episode. If I had a coherent theory, I'd just lay it out and say, this is what I think here. But I do see exploitation going both ways here. 
Um, and I do, but but I want to go back to the confidence. But what do you, what do you, what 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 what's your take on that, Swift? And why haven't there been more overthrowing, if indeed it is happening? I think one of the main reasons why there hasn't been as many is um, revolutions are risky. Even if you were to take the position that yes, we're being exploited, uh, yes, systematically, the question is, well, is it worth rolling the dice to try to replace the ruling class with something else? Or should we just go, well, let's just try to make the best of it? Um, you know, and then you get into the sort of reformist versus revolutionaries. Um, no, you, so you could argue that, say, the social democratic uh, parties or the social democratic uh, views of sort of the late 19th century, you know, they see, oh, the excesses and the exploitation of, um, of of the capitalist class. You know, what should we do? Should we become Marxist revolutionaries or should we become trade unionists? Should we, um, shall we um, just organize them and, you know, try to keep the, the system alive? Because we can kind of see there's good there and it always kind of balance it out. So, I, I think, as ever, you've got the idea that you know maybe um, reformist uh, approach would be quite good. Um, there's also the idea of um, sort of the ideology uh, of, of 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 the society. It might be the case that well, if they think about it, and you ask them, "Are you exploited by your lord?" Well, yeah, kind of, but he's a lord, so he's allowed to. Now, I suppose you could argue that in that say in that sense, they don't think it's exploitation. But I mean, it's in practice. I don't know if that makes that much difference. They they just go well. Actually, no. He's the Lord. This is what the Lord does, and he provides stuff for us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We've never been invaded. You know, the last like four wars. But you know, he might. So he might be worthwhile. Um, so there's that, and then of course there's you know the degree to which uh, you think you're being exploited. Because if you're being exploited, but only a small amount, then again. The costs of uh, revolution are too high. Um, I mean, you talk about slaves. You could argue, you know, slaves are highly exploited, uh, which is true in many cases. Um, but I mean, is it really going to be in their interest to try and overthrow their uh, their master? I mean, it's going to depend on the social circumstances. To what extent they think they can free free themselves or go somewhere else, and what they, can they earn? Um, it might be a better tactic just to try and make try and work well for their master so he treats them relatively well uh, I mean historically I mean that there were um, slaves who were given their freedom by their masters and their will because you know they seem to be a good slave um, given the fact that they were going to be given their freedom in the death I, I think it unlikely at least comparative to other slaves at the time that they would have been treated that badly um, so in a way I think you could argue if the the super um, competent ruling class, what they need to do is to sort of um, exploit people enough so they get enough economic benefit out of it and get extra power without turning the dial too high to make it worthwhile to um, rebel. I think I think if, if, if I were sort of, well, if I was in a position of sort of exploit, exploitative ruling class, that's what I would do. Or at least that's what I think I would do anyway. Um, now, as to why um, the Marxist revolutions took place in agrarian societies and not um, sort of uh, more advanced societies, I think possibly to some extent that the agrarian ones kind of thought that they had less less to lose. 
uh, especially for agrarian farmers and and they could just keep farming hope get rid of a lord i mean that's kind of they can continue as they were hopefully without some sort of guy taking some of their stuff but when you've got a situation where you've got to sort sort of um own and run factories and stuff i mean you might not be hugely competent to do so and it, and the whole system might kind of collapse in a way whereas in the agrarian societies it's uh, it's kind of simpler to be be relatively self-sufficient which i think would then reduce the probability uh, sorry would re- reduce the costs of a, a revolution and so um make it more likely um so so that that would be my my approach to why it would happen in various places what do you reckon with and we did an episode on kevin carson and one of the points i made is that kevin carson seemed kevin carson seems like a proto-primitivist and i'd say the best primitivist out there if there was indeed one is ted kaczynski here could you just say that industrial society is exploitative here and that having sort of wide ranging division of labor um where you don't know who's you don't know which part of the production process. Like if you're making a cabinet, you chop down the tree, you 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 make the whole cabinet yourself, or the log cabin yourself. You you have the whole production process in front of you. Um, you have all the goods in front of you. But if on the other hand, if you're like going to if you're going to a hard hardware store, you know they're probably getting their lithium from you know some factory in Nigeria, and they're getting there's this from you know from some place in 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 London, and this finance from someplace else. Blah blah blah. Um, that's somewhat, you know, alienated. So my critique of like Carson would be that he's just a kind of primitivist, which is fine. I, you know, I, I live within, I, every, I can go drive a half an hour and see a huge population of Maronites and Amish. I'd say they're some of the best proto-primitivists. Yes, they, some of them use iPhones. Yes, some of them have sneakily used technology on the side, but you know, the, the, if, if if gas they do not people who use horse and buggies aren't directly affected by gasoline prices for example here um, they're relatively easier to maintain here now, of course the state makes vehicles harder to maintain blah 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 um, so that's sort of counterback to Carson here maybe in the it's state industrial society that's exploitative it's not industrialism itself it's state industrial society maybe there's never but then again they, they would say well maybe you could have had the industrial revolution without the state here um, so maybe that's the question here. Um, what would you make of a, you know, like industrial society? Because maybe that's the thing that's actually Smith is driving at, like the division of labor. Um, like, you know, if you can all specialize, and this definitely Ricardo makes this point, you know, if you, know, you can specialize, if you get really good at fishing, um, you, you know, you start thinking, well, actually, if I take a boat out there made of steel, and then I just go, you know, that's actually the best way to fish. Forget, you know, being just a skilled craftsman here um, um, and so forth. But what would you make about that? Is industrial society itself exploitative maybe maybe we're all maybe we're all just missing the mark here in that sense all the thinkers i listed here and we need to go in that way swithin that's a very interesting point um ted kaczynski i mean he one of the reasons kaczynski argues against the industrial society because he thinks basically my position is impossible which is the um the um, in the technological society in which there isn't sort of a central bureaucracy of high level regulation and um, high levels of sort of like a, a, a genuine sort of free market industrial society, basically things can't happen. Um, but the interesting question I think here is, though, even if it were to happen, it is true that you're, you can't be self-sufficient in a certain way. 
Um, now, I suppose this does depend to what extent how long supply chains would be absent um, sort of hat tip Peter Zion and um, Todd, Todd Lewis, the US Navy's uh, patrol of the uh, shipping lanes worldwide. Um, but even so, I mean, you're going to be dependent upon resources from somewhere other than something very, very, very local, probably. Otherwise, you're not going to have the materials to um, uh, produce the stuff you want to produce. I mean, so, I mean, for things like, um, like lithium, for instance, I mean, this is even even the case if you had the situation whereby everybody had their own micro micronuclear reactor so they could have all the electricity they possibly want and just need to buy thorium on a sort of infrequent basis because you know that thorium so energy dense that you know you, you basically never have to buy, buy it once either way you're still going to be dependent on other people from in a, in a large distance away from you um and yeah i mean you you could argue well whether that's really exploitation is another question, but um, if you were to treat it as sort of exploitation of freedom or, or something like that, then you could argue that, well, well then, yes, um, industrial society is going to make you dependent on other people in a way that um, you don't have in a pre-industrial society. Um and, and also, you could say that the reason it seems exploitative in the industrial society is it's kind of this faceless group of people who have this sort of control over you with access to the resources and what resources go where. Whereas, um, whereas in a pre-industrial society, you kind of know, you, you, I think, I think I remember Todd Lewis making this kind of point, you kind of got like a human scale society. But still, even then, in pre-industrial society, you still got merchants. I mean, you have like the Silk Road and stuff. Um, but yes, I mean, yes, you, you you could say if you if you expanded it beyond sort of like a, a, a more of an economic one for, for a sense of sort of like freedom as such, um, then yeah, I mean, yes, you could definitely say industrial society is exploitative. And Marx doesn't because Marx is a materialist and just uh, and seems to uh, value technology. Which is where sort of like the modern sort of eco Marxists aren't really Marxists, because Marx was all about um, material progression and increasing man's um, uh, power over nature to sort of meld it in his own image. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I think your point on the industrial society is an interesting one. And Marxist, actual existing Marxist societies, whether they are true Marxist societies or not, are terrible in the environment, for better or for worse. I mean, I, I think it's quite rational that, like, if you need, if if the if you need to, if you view the United States as threatening you, so you need to quickly build nuclear weapons, or you're going to poison a lake um, somewhere in Siberia, or it's it's in the Balkans, just say, okay, I need to test some weapons here. Let's quickly get this done here. Uh, I think, or you know, you, you, now I, so actual existing Marxist regimes are um, quite bad for the environment anyway, which is fine. Again, I'm not, I think, the, to go back to, I think, Alex, uh, uh, the, the, the carousel of Epstein's. Some of them are great, some of them are terrible. Um, the what the guy who wrote the moral case for fossil fuel here, um, I very much agree with that that take here, so that the eco-Marxists in a sense are just, should just be primitives here. Um, um, so, so, 
and uh, Cadron would make the point that he doesn't like the David Graeber left anarchist view. He says that it's sort of like a fairy tale here that you need to, need to, you need, you need the, you need technology, you know. So David Graeber, in a sense, um, doesn't, he's a kind of, gets into sort of this sort of, he's sort of a left wing version of what you and I are to some extent here. Uh, so I, I, so why do I think this is important to lay out the theories of the exploitation and why I think they're, they all sort of matter here? I think, I think the common sense definition of exploitation makes proximate sense. Um, and I, and un, contrary to what maybe Keith Preston thinks, contrary to what Kevin Carson may thinks, I do think the sort of, I do think the logic of Adam Smith do go after certain absentee landlords. The problem is though, problem is, do the landlords serve a purpose here? And I've, we sort of discussed this. I do the renter class serve an interest here? And like, you know, who puts them in power here? So now I, Kevin Carson and Keith Preston have better answers to that question here. If it is indeed is exploitive here, if indeed it is things that you wouldn't freely negotiate in, a, in, a, in a, an actual quote unquote freed market here, you wouldn't take a 20% interest rate here, but you might not get much interest at all. That's another thing here. Maybe maybe loans just wouldn't really exist um, a, a monetary goods in society to just for monetary goods or something like that. Um, um, getting the technical terms, which are more my weak point here. Um, um, so that that'd be my sort of criticisms. And then like and the state itself, the best argument for the state, and this is the only argument for the state to me, and it's the one that when pushed people will make here, including Todd Lewis, including Moldbug, including Mises is the state protects you from other states here. <laughs> so like, if you want, you don't, and you know, even, even the United States here, like, um, like, um, they always have the China boogeyman or the Russia boogeyman, um, to deploy and they'll deploy them against different people. And again, Putin will deploy the Western boogeyman against certain people. And in the, in the previous times, wouldn't you want, would you want to be exploited by those landlords from France or those landlords from the Norman conquerors or whatever, or the Scottish landlords? And so you can you can do this for other things here. So I'd say even Marxist regimes um, are bent on the idea that they protect you from capitalist regimes, the actual existing ones. The North Korean regime protects you from the South Korean regime. And in a sense, it's true. You know, in a sense, if the Kims fell today, they would probably be occupied by either China or the United States. Um, um, I, I, I mean, I, so like you know, in, the national defense thing does make sense here, but it also, it's also a problem for the left-wing people. And I've just sort of discussed this with like the Spanish the Spanish Revolution here. The Spanish Revolution was taken over by the Stalinists, hijacked by the Stalinists first. They actually split the camps, as Oro would point out, if I recall correctly. Um, so like, you know, if you have a trade unionist society that, or Kevin Carsonianist society here, and some big bad, I don't know, uh, Stalinistan, or I don't know, uh, some big bad, you know, uh, Gary Northville comes in, not that Gary Northville, maybe they would come in. Um, how would you defend yourself against those people? So maybe you can internally set it up amongst people, but you need to defend it here. Um, so that's, to me, the only argument for the state and all its sort of overarching tentacles here. You know, our corporations protect us from other corporations here. Um, what do you make of that argument for the state? Um, um, the state, yeah, the state sort of writ large here. You know, I'm taking the sort of thick definition of the state used by Kevin Carson, Keith Preston, and a lot of the mutualists here. I'm not just, I'm not just, I'm not just saying, you know, yes, Elon Musk gets a lot of state power, so therefore he's probably in some sense status in some way. So yes, I'm using a very thick way. What do you make of that 
that claim, and then just sort of boil it back down to the micro level. If you have a society which is exploitation-free, how do you keep outside exploiters away? Um, you know, the, the Nietzschean claims you become, you know, in fighting monsters, be careful not to become one. Um, you know, I, Rothbard has a history of the United States here, and Rothbard seemed to think that at some point the United States was quite eternally free, uh, had a quite, and maybe just at the frontier, so maybe the primitive saying comes back in, that, you know, freedom is really only found in, like, the not-so-wild West, um, and so forth, uh, or in sort of areas away from, you know, quote-unquote parasitic classes, and so forth, uh, that aren't firmly entrenched. What do you make of that, Swithin? I think that the argument that the state is there to protect you and other states merely just seems to be a species of, well, we need the state, otherwise there would be a lawlessness, um, which I, I, I don't particular I don't really buy. Quick interruption. Do you think that is the argument that is deployed as the sort of cornerstone of, or do you think it's something else? I think if you get down to drilling people as to what, why they think you need, you need um, a state is not for crime per se, but like a, a large organized group of, uh, of, of bad men who are going to come and take and beat you up take stuff from you and beat you up and therefore we need to protect you from them. So I, I think in most cases, yes, it, I think you're right, it does devolve to um, the national defence type argument. Um, I mean, you could argue it might be fair, it might be a good argument to some extent, but um, I mean, I tend to find these people to uh, overestimate the amount of external um, exploitation or potential, exp potential exploitation and underestimate the amount of um, internal exploitation in their sort of uh, way of doing things. So, for instance, apologists for the American empire will go, oh, how bad the Chinese are, how bad the Russians are, um, and be completely two-faced and uh, blind to when the Americans do exactly the same things that the, they are accusing uh, the Chinese or the Russians of doing. Oh no, they uh, they, exp they they put political prisoners away and dis make them disappear. It's like uh, have you heard of Julian Assange? Uh, at which point, oh no, 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 he's terrible. He broke the law. Da, 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 da. So um, I I think that's an argument often deployed. I don't think it's a very good argument because uh, all you need, I think, in general, to prevent um, an invasion, one is to have a very armed population anyway so that the costs of occupation are very high so it dissuades entry and also um communication technology alexander the great would not have been able to have um got the empire he did if all those cities that he uh, conquered could actually coordinate their armies and work together and have like a big showdown with him early on he wouldn't have got past then the question arises well would you have modern communication technology without the state. Would you have uh, private satellites that did that? I don't know. I certainly could see in such a situation there'd be a lot of motivation to do that because if you did have satellites which were there and so you could get sort of um, reliable communication, then that'd be highly valuable. So I'd expect it would happen. Um, although, you know, maybe you could argue the economies of scale. Uh, don't work on such a small level or whatever you could do that. But I think that'd be a more interesting claim. 
Um, but the um, the national defence argument is, um, I, th I think, once you look at it closely and look at the reasons why people invade other places, um, it's um, it, it's nowhere near as strong as it seems on the surface. It's nowhere near as strong. I agree, but I, I do think I, I don't. I do think on a visceral level um, that you know why don't people. Because in a sense, a trade union, if you take thicker versions of the, if you take a sort of autistic version of the state, correct, seriously, um, you start coming into theories of like, well, is the family a state? Is the trade union a state? Is is McDonald's a state? Uh, like, well, maybe, maybe not here. So, so you know, this comes back into the old age of the question, what is the state here? Um, like, oh, and what is the ruling class here? But like, if you, if you think, why don't you? you overthrow your workers because like of the Marxist view, the state is like a worker state. They want a worker state. And a lot of like, you know, the Burnham people, the managerial revolution people, the sort of competence theorists, which is a bit of a dog whistle here. We just feel a worker state is a contradiction in terms here because you need to, you need to sort of like the iron law of oligarchy here and so forth. Maybe it's just impossible here to have that thing. And again, that's one reason I'm a right libertarian. I think some forms of exploitation are just going to happen because people acting out their own freedom make bad choices or make uninformed choices. And there's no one, there's no benevolent dictators around to inform them of what their be their actual good choice would be here. So that's my own that's my own view on exploitation here. Um, you know that people talk about consciousness and raising consciousness. I do think, you know, on some level, I do, even though that's a bit of a meme. That's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, a a stupid word. I do think, on some level, it is true. Insofar as you have to make people aware of, you know, of of like taxation is, you know, if anyone else would engage in taxation, they wouldn't um, do it. Uh, they wouldn't if a if a private citizen, so to speak, if such things exist, do it. You know, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be allowed to do that. Um, but you know, people just accept it. Um, same. So, so I do think there needs to be progress on freedom in that sense, but there might be an upper limit here onto what um, exactly everyone wants to do and has the ability or the willingness to do as well. So that would be my overall thing on exploitation here. I think exploitation is fairly common, um, um, but whether it's conscious or not is a good question here. And if in some sense if it's not conscious, who really even cares? <laughs> uh you know who? Who even Ted Kaczynski? You know, is Kaczynski better off now? He's living in some supermax prison here. And actually, a Netflix documentary on him would say that one thing he's afraid of is actually him growing to like um, the prison here. I mean, because you know, it's in some in a bizarre sense that uh, uh, I think he gets to write all his letters and so forth. So I don't know. In the exploitation theories, I think, are very useful here. And I think there's a lot of overlap between the Marxists and libertarians, which is sort of, this is a sort of follow-up on our most recent episode on why Sean Gabb and Chris Cotone agree so much. Because I think if you boil down certain theories and you take good definition uses of society and the data, you can get similar conclusions. So, Swithin, do you have any final comments here um, on, um, on maybe there's an upper bound to, like, an exploitation-free society? You know, aren't bad choices just going to be made or differences in views? Um, what, what, what's your view? Thanks for doing this episode here. That's probably my last comment here. I think the 
iron law of oligarchy is true, um, but I don't necessarily think all oligarchy is necessarily exploitative in the relevant sense. Uh, but even if they were, I think this, on a, at least on a political level, uh, is a reason why you want many, many political communities so it's very easy to move between them. Even in, um, I mean, so for, for example, in, in Britain, even in the medieval period, I mean, you could be relatively mobile. I mean, some of them you did, you could, some of them were tied to the land, but not everybody. But as far as you were, I mean, you could move. Uh, and if you could move to like a, a, a different political community, that allows people to influence the area in which they, they live and the way it's run without having to run it themselves because they themselves won't be very competent at running it. I mean, so for instance, it, it, it's like, well, a good pizzeria will exist because people go and buy stuff from them. Um, that that doesn't, doesn't mean that the customers have any idea how to run or make decent pizza. But insofar as they know that it can go to different ones, is it, it's then likely to increase um, the, av- the, the quality of the pizzeria as opposed to only being able to go to one single pizzeria in like, a massive sort of say say um, entirely in America, I and mean, there's only a one pizzeria. Um, so that so that so that would be one thing. I would also say um, I think at the heart, to some extent, with the exploitation theory is if there is the view that if there were not exploitation, there would be income equality, um, which um, simply just isn't true. I mean, we're talking about the competency theory. I mean, you're always going to have. Uh, people who are better than others, they're more intelligent, they're going to earn more, they're, I mean, they're just going to make better on average decisions and be able to satisfy a group of um, consumers better than any of of them individually could do. And so their monetary income is going to be significantly higher. Um, I mean, that's that's, that's going to happen. Is that exploitative? Not necessarily. but I, I think you, one thing we have to think with exploitation is the idea that somehow you would expect high levels of income equality. Uh, I think Kevin Carson does this as well. He kind of thinks that in a free market, somehow it would all be flattened out, which I, I just think is is not how reality works. Um, I, I suppose in, in a way you could argue that sort of like pan-anarchism of the Prestonian variety is a way of ha- of being able to tr- choose your slave master for most people. It's, oh, hey, where do I choose to live under rather than running anything? Um, now, the slave master will know they can't be sold or whatever, but you get the idea. Then A lot of people are never going to be in the situation of actually running anything because it's not competent to do so. And they have no interest in doing so either. I mean, why, why do why, you know, some people just simply don't want to join, uh, work up the corporate ladder because it requires them working more hours. They'd rather go home earlier. Um, and so I, in a way, I, I, I think that, well, I suppose insofar, I mean, I mean Tay, Taylor says something like this, um, you know, basically being an employee is like being like a slave of some description because you basically just do whatever your boss tells you within reason. Um, so it's, it's almost like a, a form of voluntary slave contract. Now, obviously, it's not in perpetuity, et cetera, et cetera, but you get the idea. Um, so I, I think, again, with exploitation, you, you've got to take into account sort of the equality and inequality thing. 
I'd now just like to thank everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and, sus- and subscribe to us on Podbean on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all, please contact us at mindcryingdeputyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcryingdeputyshow at gmail.com. <laughs>